So this morning we're talking about gratefulness, and I've got this kind of theory that I don't know if gratefulness is a virtue or a discipline. It might be better called a discipline, something we have to intentionally act out, something we have to go after with, with effort. Uh, but it's also sort of a virtue. It's a, it's a joyful sense, a hopeful sense that we need to talk about. And we're going to talk about some scripture, but before we do, I kind of walk, want to walk into this with a couple of different examples. I, I believe gratefulness is a militant act. Do you know what I mean by militant? Some of you do. Others of you are afraid to admit you do. You know, militant is that sort of act that a little child does when, they, when, they, when, they, when you tell them what to do and they say, absolutely not. You know what I'm saying? I, the other day I asked Noah to come, and he said, no. And I said, Noah, please come. And it was a Sunday morning, and he said, no. And we went back and forth five times. There was serious discipline involved in this situation. Back and forth we went, and, and I'll tell you, I won, and he made it to church, barely. And, and, and it, but it, it struck me that there was a militance in his heart. This little boy was looking at me, and he, and he likes to do it. Most of my kids, they don't, I, they don't have the, they've grown past uh, the courage that Noah has at three. Let's put it that way. At, at four, Maggie doesn't do this, and at, so, at six, Sophie definitely doesn't do this. They look at me periodically, and they might say, well, I don't really want to. Let's argue. Let's talk about it. But Noah's the only one who will absolutely look at me and say, no. And then he kind of stands up and does that. I think grateful Grateful is an act. Gratefulness is an act. It's a discipline that we have to act out in our world today militantly. Because if we respond to the stuff that's around us, if we respond to our context, if we respond to the people and the situations that we naturally fall into, we're not going to respond gratefully. That's not going to be, that's not the natural response in our time and in our place. Let me tell you what I mean. When I, when I first came to live in Pennsylvania, it was 1999, and I went to work for Vanguard, as many of us have worked uh, in, the, in recent years. Vanguard is, a, is the largest employer. It was at that time on the west side of Philadelphia. And I worked with a guy who I'll call Tom to protect the innocent, okay? Tom uh, was, was a 55- was a to 65-year-old gentleman who was nearing his retirement. And he and I worked in this giant vault at Vanguard, 100,000 boxes that we managed together. We were responsible for making sure that if anybody at Vanguard needed information at any moment, our job was to get it to them within a day. We had 24 hours to pull a piece of paper out of one of those boxes and hand it over. So that was, that was our role, and we got to know each other quite well. And Tom is a really wonderful guy. I mean, he's really a fun guy to work with. And so we got, to start, we got to talk about each other's lives, and he was very interested. He'd never been to Michigan, and he was kind of curious as to what it was like there. And I was curious as to what it was like here. And so he explained. And the stories that Tom would tell me, I still think about, because I would say that those were my first crash courses on what it's like to live in the Pottstown River Valley, the Schuylkill River Valley, somewhere, and I'll just say that geographically this land is somewhere between Ringing Rocks and Route 23, okay? This whole area in which we live, most of us live in that area. Some of us are just slightly outside of it. Ken, I saw you look at Judy. You don't live quite in that area necessarily, but, but most of us live in this area, and he would talk about what it was like to live here. And every conversation we had turned out to be somewhat depressing. He talked about the fact that he had worked for several decades working for Mrs. Smith's Pies. And then one day he had realized that Mrs. Smith's Pies was no longer going to employ him. 
And he started to talk about the fact that he had, had hopes growing up in this area, believing that it was, a, it was a positive place to live, and he was excited about all the potential, and it seemed like he'd always have a job. And then the job failed, and his kids kind of went by the wayside, and eventually his marriage fell apart, and he got involved in a second marriage. And his second marriage, while still existing, there were some significant traumas. There were some difficulties in it. And he, rec- he talked about his kid. One of his kids was a wonderful baseball player, very, very, acad- or very, very athletically excellent. And he went off to college, and, and, he, and he was just a great pitcher the first year. But then he started to drink, and by the second year, he was just not quite as good a pitcher. By the third year, he had dropped off the baseball team altogether. And his dad, who had, had pictures of him in a Phillies uniform, was now settled or resigned to the thought that he was going to work in a cubicle the rest of his life. And as I talked to Tom, what I realized is there was anything but a grateful spirit. In fact, at points, Tom got into, I'll, I'll say he just engaged in criticism. There was a grief about him that, that what had been going on in our world and around him specifically in this area had not been what he had hoped it would be. And as a result, sometimes he would engage in kind of a criticism of the leaders. He would talk about the supervisors who he had thought would care for him and his family, who had let him significantly down. Fast forward with me, if you will, but today as we look out over this river valley, and there's a lot of signs of growth and development. We have all these pharmaceuticals. Vanguard itself is a, is a big employer. But just on an economic level, if you drive around, it's interesting to go to someplace like the distillery in Linfield and to see all of those empty buildings. I've sat in the hospital and I talked to a guy who was a foreman at the Bethlehem Steel Plant in the south end of Pottstown, and he described what it was like in the heyday of Bethlehem Steel as he manufactured things like the Golden Gate Bridge. And, uh, and he talked about the, the era of industry of Pottstown and what a wonderful time it was. And he just, you could see him just kind of get energized in his hospital bed as he revealed what it was like to live in Pottstown. I, I've, I've listened to guys talk about what it was like to cruise down High Street when it was four lanes back in the day. Some of you think, oh my goodness, my kids were there and they shouldn't have been. Others of you are saying, man, I wish I could go back to that era. But the time has left us. It's gone. Mrs. Smith's pies, I see the, the stainless steel baking uh, stuff still laying out in the rain every time I go home and take Washington Avenue. Dana is still there, but it went bankrupt at least once. I don't know how many times now. You know, when I was growing up, I grew up in a different state, but to work for General Motors, if you could possibly get into General Motors, you knew you were going to have a wonderful job, and you knew that your kids would be would benefit from it and that the, the health care and all of the different things would be, would be top echelon. And today, as you know, bank, General Motors has gone from being the largest employer and the largest automobile manufacturer in the world to going bankrupt, literally. People were li- lining up in the different UAW offices in southeast Michigan last year wondering if their health care benefits would be revoked even as they're retired, pondering maybe the world has changed to the point where this great juggernaut, GM, is no longer going to pay for our lives, even though we've given them 30 to 40 years of employment. So we have a, a, a beautiful place to live. I will tell you that Pennsylvania is gorgeous. In the springtime especially, the the flowers are coming up, the trees are beautiful. But in between those trees and in between those green, the green beauty of this spring, you can look at those old brown sites and you can see loss. You can see grief. And, and, and frankly, I don't miss the Bethlehem steel plant. Maybe you do. I don't, I don't really know whether it was vital or wonderful thing to behold in its, in its day. But what I can tell you is when I'm talking with my neighbors in Pottstown, they miss it in the form of they watch their dads lose their jobs. 
And there was a certain amount of depression and grief that set in in those moments. And then there was a lack of hope. And eventually there was a criticism and a frustration and even an anger that developed in our community as a result of these losses. That's very, very normal. This is how the world works. I know I was... uh, We transferred my ordination today, and we're supposed to have a joyful sermon, right? And I start out with this, talking about Bethlehem Steel. You're feeling blessed at this point, aren't you? Yes. Well, let me tell you that I believe that it's the call of the children of God to live in any situation, at any time, in any place that God calls them to, and to act out the gratefulness that is natural to the children of God alone. We don't respond to the loss of industry in our era. We respond to the, to the greatness of our God in our area. In Psalm 22, 3, it says that God inhabits the praises of his people. Literally, God chooses to live in a human heart that is thankful. When we look at God and we realize what the cross has done for us, that is the source, it's the locus, it's the place in which we place our joy. We don't ask why us when things that happen that are, that are negative compared to the person down the road. What we realize is why us when we escape eternal separation from our God. And so we look at our Savior and we say, wow, how did God bless us this much? And the outflow of that is a militant gratefulness. And in our area, it looks about as obstinate. It looks as much out of place as my son Noah, who weighs maybe 26 pounds soaking wet, looking at his 185-pound dad and saying, no, and you can't make me, you know? We have to look at our era and our area and our space, and we have to look at it, and we have to say we will be grateful no matter what. We will be grateful no matter what. So this morning I want to read to you from John chapter 11. This won't be on the wall. I'm going to read to you out of a different version. They don't have this available in the back. And it's the version that's easier to listen to. It's called The Message. So you'll just probably want to uh, either read it later or, or just kind of follow along. But you'll notice there's a significant wording difference. I'm going to read from John chapter 11, verse 17. And I'm going to read right to the end of the story in verse, in, in verse 46. And we're going to talk through the spirits of a region. Because what Jesus encounters in this passage is a spiritual reality in this place called Bethany, which is a couple miles out of Jerusalem. He walks into a situation that is kind of a microcosm of what we're experiencing today. We live in a place where it's very easy for people to be depressed, to be grief-stricken, to be critical, to be negative. And Jesus walked into a town that felt very, very similar to that. And he taught them how to be grateful. Watch what happens. John chapter 11. I'm going to begin reading with verse 17. When Jesus finally got there, and again, there is Bethany, he found Lazarus already four days dead. Lazarus was one of his closest friends. And Jesus had actually been called ahead of time. Lazarus' two sisters, Mary and Martha, had actually called him and said, hey, our brother's sick. Your friend is sick. You might want to come. This might be the time when you could make a difference in his life. But Jesus doesn't arrive until four days later. And by the way, Jews believe that for the first three days after a a body was laid into the tomb, the spirit kind of hung around. And so there was the possibility, and this came from the fact that sometimes they had misdiagnosed people as being dead. Actually, literally, there were these so-called resurrections where people had popped out of the graves and said, hey, here I am, and they weren't dead at all. They had just been in a coma for a short period of time. So they developed this theory that for three days, the spirit kind of hovered around. But on the fourth day, somebody was considered not just dead, but dead. You know what I'm saying? And so Jesus arrives at that moment. Bethany was near Jerusalem, only a couple of miles away, and many of the Jews were visiting Martha and Mary, sympathizing with them over their brother. 
Martha heard Jesus was coming and went out to meet him. Mary remained in the house. Martha said, Master, if you'd been here, my brother wouldn't have died. Even now I know that whatever you ask God, he will give you. And Jesus says, your brother will be raised up. Martha replied, I know that he will be raised up in the resurrection at the end time. You don't have to wait for the end. I am right now, resurrection and life. The one who believes in me, even though he or she dies, will live. And everyone who lives believing in me does not ultimately die at all. Do you believe this? Yes, Master. All along I have believed that you are the Messiah, the Son of God who comes into the world. In saying this, she went to her sister Mary and whispered in her ear, The teacher is here and is asking for you. The moment she heard it, Mary jumped up and ran out to him. Jesus had not yet entered the town, but was still at the place where Martha had met him. When her sympathizing Jewish friends saw Mary run off, they followed her, thinking she was on her way to the tomb to weep there. Mary came to, her, to where Jesus was waiting and fell at his feet, saying, Master, if only you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her sobbing, and the Jews with her sobbing, a deep anger welled up within him. He said, where did, you put, where did you put Lazarus? Master, come and see, they said. And now Jesus wept. The Jews said, look how deeply he loved him. But others among them said, well, if he loved him so much, why didn't he do something to keep him from dying? After all, Jesus opened the eyes of a blind man. Then Jesus, the anger again welling up within him, arrived at the tomb. It was a simple cave in the hillside with a slab of stone laid against it. And Jesus said, remove that stone. The sister of the dead man, Martha, said, Master, by this time there's a stench. He's been dead four days. Jesus looked her in the eye. Didn't I tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? Then to the others, go ahead, take away the stone. They removed the stone, and Jesus raised his eyes to heaven and prayed. Now listen to this prayer. Father, I'm grateful that you have listened to me. I know you always do listen. But on account of this crowd standing here, I've spoken so that they might believe that you sent me. Then he shouted, Lazarus, come out. And he came out, a cadaver, wrapped from head to toe and with a kerchief over his face. Jesus told him, unwrap him and let him loose. And if you've been in church at any, for any length of time, you'll have heard this story over and over again. It's a story that we love to quote from at funerals. It's the story we love to remind ourselves, Jesus is the resurrection and the life, right? Jesus is the resurrection and the life. But for just a few moments, I want to take apart this story and make mention of a few things. What would this town have looked like that Jesus is walking in? You know, every culture grieves. I'm from, my, my ancestors are from Western Europe or Northern Europe. And Northern Western Europeans, stereotypically, when we grieve, we kind of sit around and there's quiet tears rolling down the cheeks and we sit, there's no wailing, there's just kind of a silence, just kind of a, we sit in the room. I remember hearing the news that my mother had cancer and there's a certain amount of grief whenever you get a diagnosis like that. And my family gathered around the living room, we sat there and we just kind of stared at each other. There wasn't much conversation, there wasn't any joking, there wasn't any food, there was just sitting around and, and kind of thinking, what will life be like over the next few months as we fight this dread disease of cancer? There's grief in that, in that room. But the culture of the Jews was different. I suspect that above all other cultures, and I haven't been around the world to poll and figure out who's the best grievers, but Jewish people reputedly in this era were wonderful at grief, okay? 
They took off their work. When, when, when somebody like Lazarus died in the community, everybody came in from the fields, and not for one day, but for several. And so people may have even come from Jerusalem, and there's all of these people. The city was swelled to larger than its usual population. And there were people called professional mourners, that if the family was well enough off, they would pay for these people to actually lead them in griefing. Now, now we have worship leaders in our church. You can just picture Shelby getting up in front of our church and just starting to scream as loud as she could and going on like that for hour after hour after hour. Jesus didn't need to know where Bethany was to get there. When he got fairly close, he probably heard the noise of grief occurring. You could have walked by this city and known that somebody had just died within it. But this grief had, had four days to wind down. And so I suspect at this point, as Jesus is walking into the city of Bethany, this little town, it's not very large, as he's walking into this little town, there's a sense of tired grief. It's the, the, all of the wailing and the crying and the, 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 the people would go back and forth from the, the host family, Mary and Martha's home, and they would go over to the tomb and they'd go back and forth, back and forth, over and over again and do different things. And, and, and as they came back, the, 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 it just started to get less and less in energy. And the grief was getting a little bit stolid, a little bit, a little bit just kind of stagnant. You know what I'm saying? And so Jesus walks into this situation where the, 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 the tears have been cried out and people are starting to maybe even go home and it's kind of over. The, the, the funeral has been held and it's, it's a done deal. This man is gone. And so what you hear in this, in this, in this uh, town is just a sense of grief, but also a sense of like resignation. Well, it's over. That era has passed. You know, I picked this story because I think on a microcosmic level that mirrors some of what I see in my own personal neighbors. Sometimes when I'm talking with the people, my very, Shelby and I's next door neighbor actually lost his job after several years of working for this company and he had to develop this whole new, this whole new career in his 40s. And he's, he talks about the fact that he just thought his life was going to go here and it didn't. And he talks in the very same grievous tones that I expect emotionally were there in Bethany. He talks about the fact that life hasn't worked out the way it thought. You know, death isn't what we, what, what, what we were intended for. And so whenever someone dies, we have this sense that this wasn't normal. This is not right. What the people of Bethany were experiencing is not what God had called his best. It was just what happened as a plan B after the world got messed up through sin. And so what was occurring in this situation was this sense of depression and a, and a sense of resignation that, yes, once again, death has come in and taken one of us, and we have lost one, a person we've loved, a person we've respected, a pillar of our society. And so the people had gathered and grieved, and they've winded themselves down, and they're to the place where it's just kind of over. We're used to this sort of life, right? Frankly, in our era. We're used to this sort of life. We're used to hearing the news of jobs being lost. We're used to hearing of people getting cancer. We're used to hearing of another person who died. We're used to hearing things that are less than victorious. And we get accustomed to hope dying rather than hope being reborn. We succumb to believing that life of faith is a life of resignation. And frankly, all of us are going to die, right? We may die tomorrow. We may wait 30, 40, 50 years. We may wait two days. Who knows? But everybody in this room is going to pass away sooner or later unless Jesus Christ returns. So there is a sense of, of, of certainty about this thing called death, but there does not have to be the resignation. And that's what's taking over this community. And that's what Jesus starts to feel as he walks in the room. 
Gratefulness would have been absolutely a militant act in this environment. To walk in with a smile on his face would have been something that didn't fit. And Jesus actually weeps. He actually partakes in the grief, even though he knows the resurrection moment is coming. So the first spirit of this community, the first attitude that you feel when you walk into Bethany is just grief, depression, and loss, suffering, hurt, and maybe kind of that stale version of those emotions. But then there's another emotion or another sort of spirit or attitude. Three times in this story, somebody criticizes Jesus. First, it's Martha. If only you'd been here, Jesus. If only you had come. Why didn't you come to help your friend while he was still alive? Now it's too late. We're on the fourth day. Lazarus is gone. It's over. We have had to resign ourselves to the thought that there is no hope, that the resurrection will be someday in the future, but we just look at that like a pie in the sky. And today is today, and we have to face the fact that we're moving on without our brother. And you could have stopped all that. And she doesn't say it with a nasty sort of criticism you might hear in the newspaper about our politics. But she does say it in an implied way. Listen, where were you? What happened? Why couldn't you make it? And if you read the story proceeding to this, Jesus actually works to not make it before Lazarus dies. He actually lingers a few days where he's at in northern Israel and comes down south to where Bethany is only after he knows Lazarus is absolutely certain to be dead. It very much seems like Jesus scripts this event to occur the very same way we're reading it as as having occurred. And so Martha starts the story and says, I am frustrated with you, Christ. Where are you? I believe you're the Messiah. That's great, but my brother's dead. Where's faith in this moment? Well, Mary has basically the same reaction. If only you'd been here. If only you'd been here. If only you'd stepped up to the plate. And then the Jews, there were these Jews who said, well, look, he really loved Lazarus, he's crying. But then there were the others, the mutterers. And as Jesus walked through the town, there are these people who just sat there going, I don't know. I mean, this guy, he can take a lame person alongside the road, a blind person, and help them to see. He can, he can take people whom he doesn't even know, has never met in his life before, and he helps them to see. But then his best friend dies. You know, in our world, it's all about who you know, Right? It's all about who you know. I I was famous in my last community for having a guy, you know. If the plumbing failed, I had a guy. If the electric failed, I had a guy. I had this shade tree mechanic. He was wonderful. You could just drop a car off and he'd fix it on the side of his road. I mean, you know, I had these people in my last community. It was all about who I knew. If I had a, a concern or a question in any direction, I had a phone line that I could call for those moments. Well, the people of the Near East were very much like that. They thought they had a guy. Jesus was their guy. You get sick, in this area you had some hope because Christ was around. And if you were a close friend of Jesus's, well, then you had a lot of expectation, right? But they send for Jesus and he doesn't come. And so this whole community of people has grown somewhat critical. Maybe they're even critical of God. They've become depressed and now they're, they're going into the next stage and that's this criticism, that's this frustration, this anger with their leadership. Have we seen that in our town? Have we seen us? You know, I stopped getting the Pottstown Mercury and some of you asked me why. And I, I, you, if you get the Mercury, don't take any offense. I have a friend who works for the Mercury. I think it's probably a fine organization. But, you know, I am addicted to reading, and I don't know what they call it here, but my last week they called it the darts and flowers section. 
what is it, at the, the, the sound off? Is it the Pottstown sound off? And you, you get the Pottstown Mercury and you pick out the sound off and, and there is somebody on there that is like, those absolutely moronic Democrats have done it again. And they scream on their, I mean, it's all in type, but the way it reads, they're just absolutely insulting the President of the United States. And then the, next, the very next line in the sound off is, those Republicans are idiots. They deserve what they get if they get that. You know, and you go back and forth and they're just so nasty. I'm addicted to reading it. If I get near the Pottstown Mercury, I, I don't go to the sports page, I don't read the editorials, I read that and I go, what do the people in my community think? And what they think is, everybody else is an idiot. I know who's an idiot, it's all of you guys, you know what I'm saying? And, 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 and that's how it feels. It's engagement in an absolute criticism and the people who take it the worst are the leaders in our society. Woe to the person who sticks their head above the leadership groundhog hole, you know, and says, okay, I'll do something in leadership because they will show up in the Pottstown Mercury. They will show up in our verbiage. They will show up at our water cooler, and we will talk about them, and we won't talk about them positively. My friends, my, my, my friend, uh, this is, this, I have a friend who's a, a, an unbelievable football fan. And he calls me to rant about Philadelphia. He lives in West Michigan. And he calls me to rant and says, Donovan McNabb is going to be in the Hall of Fame. And you idiots just fired him. What's wrong with the city of Philadelphia? And he has actually called me three times in the past six weeks to say just that. And the, the last one, he just said, you guys deserve whatever you get now. You, you're going 8-8, eight 6-10, and, eight, six and ten, you watch. That, Donovan McNabb is the best quarterback in Eagles history. I have no idea whether he's right or wrong, but I do know that we get addicted to criticism. We are like these people. Where were you, Jesus? Where were you? And we fail to take joy, we fail to take thankfulness from the things we absolutely have to be thankful about. And we get stuck on the stuff that's negative and dark. We get stuck on the stuff that's negative and dark. Jesus looks at this situation differently than the Jews. The Jews, the Bethany residents look at this and they see, they see a defeat. Jesus looks at it as a potential for the great moment for God to work. When you look around and you travel around our area and you see things that are somewhat depressing, are you looking around to see opportunities for God to work? When you look and see a broken human life, somebody who has relationally fallen apart, you can just tell they're, they're, they're one of those people who is in, in deep straits, financially, spiritually, maybe even relationally. Something about them tells you as you're, as you're driving around that you can see this person is in need. Do you look at them and go, oh man, look at that, and just kind of avert your eyes like either the, the priest or the scribe who walked by that man on the road to Jericho that the Samaritan would one day help? Do you do that? Do you just kind of believe that there's no help coming? You know, when we get in this sort of grief and we believe in this defeatist sense, what happens is we pull into ourselves. We build up the walls. The fences in our backyards get bigger than they actually are. And we don't actually engage across the lines and think how to help another human being. We actually start to believe that all we can do is manage the meager resources and the meager responsibilities that we've been given and we can't actually touch another human life. We get depressed and we get to the place where all those people, well, if they'll just take care of themselves, well, I'll take care of myself and we'll all sit there and do what we want to do. It's completely contrary to the gospel. And as Jesus walks through this town and he starts to live the life of victory and he says, I am the resurrection of the life, and he acts like this sort of, he has a solution sort of person, they look at him like he's an oddball. That's how we're supposed to look. It's a militant gratefulness. 
What's more is Jesus, where these, these, these residents of Bethany grew critical, Jesus got grateful. Notice the prayer. And this is, I believe, the only prayer like this in the New Testament. Notice the prayer that Jesus prays. Father, I'm grateful that you have listened to me. I know you always do listen. You know, when I talk to my friend Tom, the word that would most describe Pottstown as he described it is God forsaken. This area has been left by God, according to Tom. But when I read this passage, I hear Jesus saying, I'm grateful, and the reason I'm grateful is because you, God, always listen. That means I can stand on the corner of Washington and King, and I can pray, and God hears. That means I can stand on any hill and any place next to any hurting person in this region, and I can say, God, I'm grateful because you're listening and because you love this person more than I do, more than their mom or their dad does, more than their kids do. You love the people of this valley. Isn't that an amazing thought? We have the possibility as children of God of walking in a gratefulness that is militant because it's sourced in something that's not of this world. It's sourced of something that's not of this world. The Bible calls Satan the accuser of the brothers. In the old King James, you might have heard it, the accuser of the brethren, and that's not a denominational distinction. The, Satan accuses Baptists too. You're supposed to laugh harder at that, by the way. Satan loves to accuse us. He loves to say, engage in that criticism. Get depressed. Get resigned. The world is not going to work the way it works. It's a messed up place, and you should just kind of creep back into yourself. And you know, lives that have that happen to them, things start to fall apart. Satan gets his way. I'm going to close this message with a story, and it's a story that, I don't know if it's graphic. I'll just say that it's somewhat supernatural. And it's unlike any other story in my life. But Tim and I both had a friend in college, and that friend was horribly abused. He ended up at college through a miraculous set of circumstances. He had no parental support. His mom was an alcoholic. His dad was abusive. And he ended up at our college believing that God had called him to ministry. God had called him to be a pastor. And he fit at Moody. Uh, well, let's just say he didn't fit. He, he didn't look like anybody else at Moody. He used to go for the first, the, the first year he was there, he used to see how many days he could go without talking to another human being. On a campus with 1,500 people and all of them these nice Midwestern Baptist preacher's kids like me, that this guy stood out. And he stood out because his face glowered. But somehow Dave and I became friends. And we went through college together, and it was amazing to watch God work. And he really was transformed through four years at Moody. I don't know if it was the professors, the chapels, or even just the friendships. But he developed some connections. And you could see him really doing well. But after college, things started to fall apart all over again. And when I was living in Phoenixville, and I, when I was listening to Tom tell these stories about Pottstown, I was, I, was, I was at home one day in my apartment, and I got a phone call, and it was Dave. And he said, I want you to know what's happening in my life. I've had such difficulty, such depression. My emotions, my situation has fallen completely apart. And he says, I get in bed. And this was, Dave was a phenomenal athlete. He's a huge guy. He could have beat me up anytime he wanted. Let me tell you, this was a, a very large, strong individual physically. And he says, I, get, I crawl into bed at night, and I feel like a little boy. And I hear these footsteps, and they're not human footsteps. And I hear these voices, and there's nobody there. And I don't know what to do. And I'll tell you, I got scared. 
as I listened to him. I thought, what am I going to do about this? And I, I cracked open my Bible like a good Bible college kid, having never faced anything like this before, and I read from the book of Isaiah, and there started to be these strangling noises on the other end of the phone. And he says, I can't even hear that. I don't want to listen. I don't want to know what's happening because I just I can't hear that. And he just freaked out. What I would call it today is, is kind of a hyperventilation. He was on the other end of that line, and he could not hear what I was saying. He was absolutely beside himself. There were physical signs of duress in his life, and he had described those significantly to me. I could tell what he was going through just from his story. So I thought, what do I do in this moment? And I realized that what Jesus did at this moment, what Jesus did in this story in Bethany, is what I needed to do. I don't know what prompted me to do this. I'll never know. But I started to pray, and I started to talk in a way that I've never talked before. I have talked this way since. But I realized that the enemy, the accuser of the brothers, had gotten a hold of this guy in a way that needed cleansing. And I thought, the only place where there's power enough to beat this sort of enemy is the cross. And so I started to recount the story of the cross. And I literally said this on the phone. I said, you need to listen to me. There was this hill 2,000 years ago, and I described it. I said, there's three crosses on this hill, and the Son of God died on this hill, and he paid for this boy whom you're affecting, and he paid the penalty for his sins. And I could start to hear the gurgling and the choking on the phone even grow louder. And I said, and the Son of God died for this boy, and he has a covenant relationship with God, and the blood has paid for all of his sins, and you have no right to this man. And all of a sudden, something changed. And I continued to tell the story till we got to the third day, and the stone rolled away, and the resurrection, not of Lazarus, but of Jesus, actually occurred. And, and all I heard on the other end of that phone was weeping, as this guy said, I'm free. It's gone. For the first time in, my, in, in this year, I can breathe easily. You know, whatever Jesus faced in this story, that depression, that criticism, gives Satan a foothold in our lives. He eats us alive. He eats our kids alive. He eats our high schools, our middle schools, our elementary schools alive. He wounds people, and he makes the wounds that are already there worse. When Jesus walks into this town and says, God, I'm grateful, he makes a militant declaration. It's a prophetic act. He stands up and says, Thus saith the Lord, the living God of the universe has said, I love these people. I am the resurrection and the life, and I love them so much. I love them so much that I sent my only son to die for them. And Satan, you have no right here. You know, there's this passage of scripture in Luke chapters 10 and 11 where these disciples go out all over the region and they, they, they kick out demon after demon. And frankly... Although I'm not big on the whole demon behind every bush thing, I think that's what was happening with my friend on the phone. The, the, the demons that these disciples are facing, they cast them out and the demons really listen to them. And they come back to Jesus and they say, Jesus, even the demons listen. And Jesus says, yeah, I, I saw Satan fall like a lightning bolt from the, from the heavens, a star from the heavens. And he says, but listen, don't take your joy in this because the joy, the gratefulness of this world that actually works is always sourced in the fact that you're saved. He says your names are in heaven or they're not. Either this morning we believe that we're grateful because of what God has done for us and what is in heaven waiting for us or we're not. Either we stand in the midst of, midst of depressing circumstances, whatever it is that challenges your life, 
And we decide not to be critical, not to be depressed, not to be negative, not to give in to the conversation that is so pervasive in our time, and not just this region, all across our country and our world, frankly. Either we decide that Jesus is the resurrection and the life, or our lives don't have the power that God intended for them to have. One of the militant acts is the decision that we must make, that we live here, and God placed us here. It was by his intentionality, and he wanted us to live here as grateful people who have his energy, his life within us. And we walk militantly as people who stand out, people who don't make sense necessarily to those around us, but who do make sense in light of what God has done for us. We need to be grateful. And that gratefulness has a militant edge to it. It's obstinate, it's strong, it's determined that in the face of any negativity, we decide that Jesus dying for us is greater than anything else that could possibly affect us in our lives. The positives in our life are bigger than the sum total of any amount of negatives. There's no negatives that could overcome this one moment when Jesus rose from the dead. And he lives that story out for us, and he walks into this moment with Lazarus, and he says, I am grateful. Even as all of you are falling apart, I will stand and I will be grateful. Will we? Will we? Join me in prayer. God, this is a, it's a tough word. It doesn't make sense to us to believe that we need to be grateful. It doesn't make sense to us to think that in any situation we have to look beyond the moment and believe in something greater, and yet that's exactly what you've called us to. And so we ask, Lord God, we ask for your strong blessing in our lives, that you would empower us to be militant, that you would empower us to be people who walk in gratefulness no matter what happens, and that those walls that come up between human lives, that, that power that Satan has in our lives of breaking community and breaking relationships and destroying the connections between fathers and daughters and sons and mothers and all of the different connections, neighbors and co-workers, Lord, all of those things that fall apart are a sign of Satan's active work in our world. And yet you, Lord God, bless us with this one weapon, this one thing that we get to stand up and say, absolutely not. And the reason why is because we're going to be grateful. And we're going to be grateful because the Son of God died for us and he rose again for us. And so his life flows in our veins and we look forward to an eternity with the living God. Thank you for this blessing. It eclipses all others. It eclipses every devastating effect of the enemy, and we're thankful for it. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.